The Forum at 8 with Sakina Kamwendo on AM Live, turning the spotlight on the big issues and the people behind them. It's 12 minutes after 8. Thank you so much for tuning in to AM Live this morning. And of course, it's time now for The Forum at 8. 45 years after his death in police custody, the National Prosecuting Authority announced last week that it will reopen the inquest into the death of Ahmad Timol. Now, the 29 uh, year old at the time, rather, Ruerpur teacher and anti apartheid activist, uh, was said to have fallen, as so many others then, from the 10th floor at uh, John Foster Square in 1971. The original inquest found uh, in 1972 that Nobody was to blame for Timol's death. The magistrate concluded that Timol had been maltreated during his detention and had committed suicide. But following a private investigation launched on behalf of the family, new evidence was placed before the NPA, which suggested that uh, the magistrate, J.J. L. De Villiers, had in his issuing of such findings. And now, after considering the evidence, the NPA has agreed that there was compelling evidence necessitating the reopening of the inquest into the interest in the interest of justice. So on the forum at eight this morning, we get to know more about Ahmad Timol, one of the unsung heroes of our struggle. And as I always say, um, a story of many South Africans. You know, uh, there are many such stories and it's so important and that we get to the bottom of it. But I must also just add that, like was the case with the Noctula Similane um, inquest, there again, you know, it was the persistence of the family that got us to the point of justice. And now again, with the Ahmad Timol case, again, the persistence of the family, the wherewithal of the family. But what about those families who don't have resources one way or another to actually see this through what happens in that case and this is something that i think we need to have a conversation about as south africans where does government step in in this regard in order to make sure that there is justice for the noctula Semelanes, for the ahmad timols and all the other unnamed victims like them of the struggle so joining us this morning is imtiaz ahmad kaji who uh, is ahmad timol's nephew and thanks so much for coming through it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Sakina. And um, I just realized that I actually know Imtiaz. And not only do I know him because we both uh, uh, were, we both are from Standerton. We both grew up in Standerton. I know the family and he knows mine. But also our grandparents, interestingly, came from the same little town in Mpumalanga, Brayton. So, yeah, the many, many, many uh, similarities there. But Imtiaz, it's 45 years on and 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 i want to start perhaps you know by going back in time at the time when your uncle met his death in in the most gruesome of manners but uh, maybe even slightly before that in terms of the family who was ahmed timol where did he come from and how did he get to that point uh, where he found himself um, a teacher as an anti apartheid activist Yes, Sakina. Um, my uncle Ahmed Timol was a teacher at the Rudaput Indian High School where he taught from 1964 till 1966. And already at that particular stage of his life, he always had empathy for the poor. You know, he was a teacher that provided something different compared to all the other teachers. In December 1966, at the young age of around 24, 
um, you know, he performs the, Hulk, the Hajj pilgrimage, which again was not a norm at that particular time. But it allowed him an avenue to leave South Africa. And after completing the Hajj, a short trip to Egypt. And in April 1967, he arrives in London. And it is here in London where he lives with his close friends who are now banned and in exile, Aziz and Isuk Pahad. And again here, he continues teaching, and again teaching the poor from the sub-Saharan uh, Bangladesh uh, uh, continent, uh, uh, countries. Again, empathy for the poor. And, you know, it is here in London where he falls in love. He falls in love with the Italian woman, uh, Ruth Longoni, who's also a communist, uh, working for the Labour Bulletin. Uh, a decision get, then gets taken in 1969 that Comrade Timor should undergo his political training in the Soviet Union. And he's accompanied for his training by our former president, Tabo Mbeki and Ann Nicholson. So for a period of nine months, he does his political training in the Soviet Union. Upon his return to London, a decision gets taken by the leadership of the Communist Party that Comrade Timor needs to return to, to South Africa to set up underground cells for the banned African National Congress and South African Communist Party. So he leaves the comfort of London, um, ends the relationship with the love of his life, makes the ultimate choice and decision that I'm coming back to South Africa in the most difficult and harshest time, in 1970, to, you know, to build structures. Now, this is a period where post-Trivonia, the leadership of the ANC, Communist Party, liberation movements are banned, they're in exile, um, and the apartheid regime have crushed all forms of opposition. And here Timor makes a decision um, to say, look, I'm prepared to come back to South Africa. He could have easily remained in London for a number of other decades and returned in 1990 you know, to earn a cabinet position. So he must be highly commended for being ultimately brave and to make the ultimate sacrifice. Right? He then comes back to South Africa February 1970, goes back to teaching at the Rodeport Indian High School, but this time he lives a double life. He starts building the underground cells. Now, you know, we need to make the point that there's no social media, there's no Facebook, there's no Twitter, there's no radio stations where one can debate like we are debating today. He goes about the process of producing political literature, political propaganda, like in Kulule Ekonum Sebenzi, and he starts distributing them in the form of a mailing list. So across the entire country, People are opening their posts and they're finding this political literature. And the apartheid regime security apparatus are completely stunned that where on earth is the ANC and the South African Communist Party existing from because we've quelled all forms of opposition within the country. Mm. We then fast forward to the 22nd of October 1971. Uh, Friday evening, um, police version of events is that they stage a normal routine police roadblock. Um, they stop this car and they find two Indians, because that's the terms that they use in, in, in this yellow Anglia. Uh, and when they're asked to open the boot of the car, they find banned political literature of the, of, of the Communist Party. Um, both the Indians are taken into custody. They're taken to Newlands Police Station. Um, they're interrogated and then they are separated. Now, separated and then taken to the notorious John Foster Square police station. And this is the last recollection of, of Salim Isop, who was in the car with my uncle at the time. So he last saw him at Newlands police station, and then they get separated. So the police version of events is that from the 22nd of October, which is Friday evening, till the 27th, around 10 to 4 on the Wednesday afternoon, they never laid a single finger on him, 
no marks, no bruises they found on his body, well looked after. Uh, and my uncle, during normal interrogation, decides to jump to his death from the 10th floor of the John Foster Square police station. And their version goes that uh, as a communist, he was trained not to betray his comrades. Uh, my uncle was afraid of a lengthy jail sentence and, and hence he had taken his own life. So on the 27th of October 1971, the family gets notified that my uncle had committed suicide. So was the family aware that he had been incarcerated? I mean, you know, and, and also just coming back into the country, as you said, he was living this double life now. Did the family have any suspicion at all of what was actually going on? Absolutely none. So he comes back, continues teaching like he did prior to his overseas visit. Um, and then on the 22nd, 22nd of October, after he's taken into custody, Sakina, the security branch um, arrive at my grandparents' flat and they're looking for Ahmed. And my grandmother responds, well, obviously he's sleeping in his room. And when they go and look in the room, obviously he's not there because he's already taken into custody. So from the 22nd till the 27th, they routinely visit the flat, harass my grandparents, harass the neighbors, looking for information, raiding the school where he had taught, all looking for building information and gathering intelligence around him. And then they come with the news that, uh, that he had taken his own life and that he had committed suicide. On the 29th of October, his body gets released. Um, people that have watched, washed his body uh, as part of the, uh, the, the religious rituals clearly indicate gruesome torture on his body. And I've actually got photographs of his body. You know, one can only in, un, cannot even comprehend the, the torture he had endured. But what had transpired is that Salim Isop, who was also detained with my uncle, was basically fighting for his life at John Foster Square Police Station. He was beaten to a pulp. And then he gets taken from John Foster, taken to a local hospital, and then gets taken to H.F. Furwood Hospital. So you've got two detainees who are completely uh, healthy prior to the arrest, get taken in, the one is, has allegedly committed suicide and the other is fighting for his life. Public pressure, locally, internationally, forces the apartheid regime and foster to open an inquest, to hold an inquest. The inquest unfolds in 1972. The family is represented by advocate George Bezos, amongst others. They make a compelling argument that my uncle was brutally tortured. There's lengthy debates about the marks and bruises on his body, the terms and, and the dates of the marks and abrasions on his body. But ultimately, Magistrate Devilius concludes that none of the security branch police officers are ever held accountable for ever laying a finger on him. And that as a communist, he had committed suicide and nobody's held responsible for his death. Well, let's pause it there for just a moment. Uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we continue um, getting to know the story of Ahmad Timol and uh, speaking to Imtiaz Kaji this morning, um, Ahmad Timol's nephew. And, of course, we'll open the lines. We'll take your calls on 891 You can SMS us on 34701, Twitter, Facebook, AM Live on SAFM or at Sakina Kamwendo. Introducing UCount Rewards for Business. Sign up at standardbank.co.za forward slash business. Standard Bank, moving forward. An authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. Sakina Kamwendo on SAFM. 
Well, back already and uh, telling the story of Ahmad Timol this morning. And uh, this, of course, in the wake of the NPA um, announcing last week that they will reopen the inquest into the death of Ahmad Timol. And uh, again, story that we've heard time and time again. But here's another family that have persevered and, and now they hopefully will have, at the end of it all, justice for Ahmad Timor. And speaking to his nephew, uh, Imtiaz Ahmad Kaji, this morning, who's telling us that story, and we'd love to hear from you as well. Uh, 34701 is the SMS line number. Tweet or Facebook us at AM Live on SAFM. Luzuko says, in South Africa, justice is for the rich and to the poor South Africans like me, justice is just a dream. So let's pick it up from where we stop now. So, Sakina, we then fast forward to the TRC hearings in 1996. Um, it's a golden opportunity for perpetrators to come forward, to make full disclosures, and to be granted amnesty. Now, in the Timol case, you know, my grandmother was very reluctant to testify. You know, for her to relive the horrors of the past and to recollect what happened to her beloved son was a very difficult decision. Mm. And she was very reluctant, and initially she refused to testify. But as the grandson and obviously her favorite, I managed to convince her to say, Ma, it's important that you go and testify. So she testifies at the TRC hearings in 1996, makes a valiant appeal to find out what had happened to her beloved son. The tragedy is that none of the security branch officers that were responsible for the arrest, the detention, the interrogation, and we believe the ultimate death were ever subpoenaed. So in other words, they witness my grandmother reliving the horrors of the past, but they were never, ever subpoenaed. The TRC investigator made some inroads. He interviewed one of the uh, security branch officers. He had a 15, 20-minute discussion with him. Um, and then he responded that he needs uh, his legal representative present. The TRC investigator then resigned. And the TRC never had the capacity and resources to fulfill the, the mandate uh, it was bestowed upon. So a golden opportunity in 1996 was lost when... All of the perpetrators, in our view, were alive mm. and were healthy. The opportunity slipped past. Fast forward in 2004, when I was doing research for my first book, Timor Quest for Justice, I made an application to the NPA that I have, I have evidence at my disposal, and I expected them to investigate further. They came back and said, look, I mean, the, the information was not useful enough, and they closed the case again in 2004. Again, another opportunity lost. Beginning of this year, I, I approached former TRC Commissioner Yasmin Suka, again, very instrumental in the Nokotula Similani case. And I pleaded with Yasmin to, you know, you know, to render support and assistance. And Yasmin must be commended for the work that she and the Foundation for Human Rights continue to do. Raise the necessary funding, set up a formidable team, and we did our own investigation, Sakina. Beginning of this year, with the support of Advocate Bezos, we went back to the NPA and the National Director of Public Prosecutions, provided new evidence at our disposal, again begging and appealing that they reopen the inquest. What we had done this time is that we, have, we had obtained the affidavit of Dr. Selim Isop, and he must be commended for coming public and for reliving the torture he, he had endured, and he had provided a very powerful, compelling affidavit. Now, the question is, if the two of them get detained, and Timol is the senior operative of this underground cell, and the police version is that they never laid a finger on him, then why is it that this is a gruesome torture meted out to Dr. Selimiso?
And this particular compelling affidavit, we've now made it available to the National Director of Public Prosecutions. Mm. And we believe that it is this compelling piece of evidence that has uh, triggered the NPA to basically reopen the inquest. So from a family perspective, I think the, the significant milestone is to get the inquest findings reversed. Unfortunate reality is that we had a golden opportunity to get to the bottom of the truth from the perpetrators themselves directly, but that opportunity is lost. So the first pri- priority right now is to get the findings reversed because we owe it to the dignity of Timor as a start to, to, to preserve his legacy, to preserve his history, and for the official records to state that he did not commit suicide, but that he was murdered. So that is our ultimate objective for this particular application. The second priority is obviously then to deal with many of the unanswered questions that remain. And many of them were not dealt with in the first book. Because the first book was purely a biography to capture his life in the annals of our history, which we've done. Mm. But unfortunately, it is an unfinished biography. It is an incomplete piece of work. And I've made it my, my life's objective to ensure that I complete this particular project. And it can only be completed by dealing with the pertinent questions that remain. Was my uncle's operation compromised? Not just in South Africa, but in London. The, the version of the police events that the roadblock was, was, was a normal routine roadblock, it was not staged. Too coincidental? Sakina Steve Bantubiko, arrested at a roadblock. Madiba arrested in Howick at a roadblock. And we know very well that this was the normal police modus operandi to protect the identity of informants. They would not come knocking at the school door or at your residence to make it obvious that they were coming to take you into custody. The entire operation regarding arrest mm. created an impression that it was purely routine and by chance. So these are the kind of questions that I'm, I'm, I'm probing, I'm investigating. Uh, and exposing the true nature of events to the best of our ability. Because the reality is that the people that had all the information have passed on. I mean, a week, two weeks ago, our deputy president pays tribute to Samora Michelle. Freedom fighter, revolutionary. Correctly so. But at no particular point in the tribute do we ask the pertinent questions as to who was responsible for Samora Michelle's death 30 years later. So we've become a nation where we commemorate, we pay tribute, which is, which is at least something, which is good and commendable. Mm. But we don't want to ask the difficult questions. What happened? Who was responsible? And not with the sole objective of vengeance, of hatred, because we are a very forgiving nation. And we've continued to demonstrate that. But we have to find the answers. And the question is, why are we not probing? Why are we allowing people that hold this information allowing them to pass on year in and year out. And yet, the same liberation movement that is a government of the day is not driving the process. Individual families, assistance with people like Yasmin Suka, Foundation of Human Rights, with funding and donors, must drive these processes. The point that we need to make is that it has to become a priority. The NPA, not just the NPA, but there has to be a political will 
by the govern- government of the day to ensure that all the outstanding cases at the TRC have got to be reinvestigated. Well, you're listening to MTS Ahmed uh, Kaji, who is the nephew of the uh, struggle uh, stalwart Ahmed Timol. Um, and uh, last week, the NPA announced that they will reopen the inquest into the death of Ahmed Timol. And telling the story here and the story of many, and I want to speak to the family. And because this issue of closure for families is also a difficult one and an important one, and one that is rather pervasive throughout the South African land. Sakina Kamwendo on SAFM. And on the forum at 8 this morning, uh, we are telling the story of Ahmad Timol. And he was an anti-apartheid activist, a 29-year-old teacher from Ruhrpur, who at the time of his death, um, the family was told that he had uh, com- uh, completed suicide by jumping through a window from the 10th floor at the now no, uh, at the notorious John Foster Square at the time. So we're telling that story. But of course, you know, it is not just the story of Ahmad Timol. And I think this is where um, a story like this comes into its own, Imtiaz, uh, because there are many other Ahmad Timols out there who, for some reason or the other, don't have their story told. Um, their families may not have the means, the resources, or just basic capacity to tell those stories. But I want to f- hone in on the family and, and, and how families cope and, and, and how families get closure, if ever, when something like this actually happens. Look, uh, you know, everybody responds differently. Um, and the Timor family is no, is no exclusion from that. As the the days, the weeks, the months, the decades move on, and especially after my grandparents have passed on, you know, the family also moves on. And, you know, everybody's got choices. People make choices. Mm. And I, at a very young age, I think specifically at the age of 12, when Ahmed's younger brother, Mohammed goes into exile, you know, I start probing and I start asking questions. How, how do I continue living in this polarized, racially segregated South Africa, an uncle that's murdered, an uncle that's in exile. And I want answers. And it is this this journey of probing that has inspired me to understand, uh, you know, what has transpired in the past. Uh, family members move on. They've got different choices. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I have made it my personal journey as a sole individual, as a nephew of the late Ahmed Timor. And, and once, once you do this, with a lot of difficulties and hardships, because we have many cynics in our communities and societies today, there's always an ulterior motive. He's generating revenue. He's, he's looking for fame. He's mm. looking for glory. He wants to be on TV. You know? but, 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 but these are side issues. There's a principal issue here that we need to preserve the legacy of our fallen heroes and heroine. I think that is the one phase. And I've always condoned myself my uncle's case is one. I mean, Luke Martin Drulli, that died in police detention in the 60s, the first person to have died, was given a pauper's funeral. And it was only through the work of the NPA many, many years later, since the dawn of democracy, that they'd actually found the remains of his body. Um, you mentioned the case of Nakutula Simelani, obviously also held in police custody during, uh, during detention. And the family till today are searching for remains. So I, I see it in a positive way that I have a grave to go to. My uncle was given a decent funeral. Two, three thousand people attended his funeral procession. 
we had local and international media coverage. Uh, public pressure forced the regime to at least hold an inquest. There were other inquests that were very, very small. The, the death of Suleiman Babla Saluji, also in the 60s. Very small uh, inquest. The matter was closed and, and disappeared from the face of the earth. So each fam- family responds differently. But the question that one has to probe is that if the liberation movement that these particular dedicated comrades belong to, that is today the ruling party, why is it that they would have forgotten and, 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 and absconded their responsibility from preserving the legacy of their own members? I think that is the pertinent question that has to be asked. I totally understand the challenges that we face today. They are vast and enormous. But we cannot disassociate, disassociate ourselves from our past. Absolutely not. And why is it that we have to go to people like Yasmin Suka from the Foundation for Human Rights that must find necessary funding and capacity and resources to do the investigations and then go to the NPA? Because in my view, there's no political world. There's absolutely no political world. And you correctly state, and this is something that I'm very consistent about, that while I'm focusing on the case of Ahmad Timur, it is done with a specific principle of all people that have died in police detention. All cadres that have died within the country, that their remains have never been found. All cadres and their families who've never been financially compensated. All families that have never even heard of the TRC. So these are pertinent, pertinent questions in my view that we need to continue probing and continue asking. And in my own personal view, they are linked to many of the challenges that we are facing today. Mm-hmm. Sipo uh, Sisle says, um, was there justice for Flint Mazibugo of Tembisa who was killed by the police? And I guess that's the point that Imtiaz is making. There are so many names that we don't even know of uh, whose families are still trug- uh, struggling to find closure because they don't know and, 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 and they have their doubts and there are many questions as a major general says so many questions but so few answers and the families must be struggling with all these questions. Uh, this one from uh, Drikop says SK I've never heard of Ahmed and this shows that the struggle against apartheid was a widespread one and thank you for pro filing the struggle hero. Joanna says, I applaud the family of Ahmad Timur for the progressing, for progressing, for pressing on rather. Uh, their search for the truth is liberating for all South Africans. Uh, Black Pass says, a sad thing is even after all the hard work done by the family, uh, the NPA will still mess up the case. Well, we don't know. We don't know that. Uh, but certainly, I'm sure MTRs will keep us abreast of developments. Um, Ahe says, Say the family wins the case and then clearly the judge from 72 was politically influenced. What sort of action can be taken against him? Is he still alive even? I'm not even sure about that. Wandi Lemtana says, too many cadres died in exile fighting for liberation. Families still are seeking justice, but they don't have the resources to challenge the law. Um, Dobel Nathan Hesu says, I wish someone in our lifetime uh, can make a documentary, a movie about young, fearless, anti-apartheid activists like Ahmad Timor. Well, in his case... Fortunately, there is one, and, and we actually asked Chueshwe to see if she can upload it for us. So you can go, apparently it's already there, so you can actually go and have a look. Uh, if you would, just want to tell us very briefly about that before we go to calls, MTS. Yeah, thanks, Sakina. I mean, through the SABC, you know, we screened a documentary called Indians Can't Fly, 
No, this was a term coined by the security branch with specific reference to my uncle. So it was aired on SABC uh, 3, I think, uh, early last year sometime. And it's obviously available, uh, you know, through the SABC archives for anybody who wants to get a copy of it. Well, it is available on our social media platforms as well if you want to take a look at that uh, Indians Can't Fly. Let's go to the lines now, 891 Sianda and Kwatuguza. Good morning. Yes, good morning, good morning. Uh, just a few points. The first one is about uh, the book sponsored by Defense uh, uh, Fund Aid, which uh, we just got a list of people who died in, in Polyfell. And I think it's very important that we, 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 we edit that book and add more information so that we, we, we deal with the past. The second one is the question of... Uh, 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 of who were between the uh, the the cadres of the African National Congress mm. and other formations? Because if you don't address that, I know that in Wazulu-Natal, for example, there were people that were handled by indicator. His case passed on. He did not give any information. I'm I'm, I'm referring to that because we have got people to the level. We have got the dad of the Jackson Kuzwaga, the father of Kuzwaga. We have got Job Kapane and Kishas Ma. And, and, and political lady, and many other comments. We have got the death of uh, Richard M. Dooley. But it is also important that we also read the book by uh, Tulasim Singh. It will tell you that uh, uh, beyond, at the upper level, beyond uh, 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 Ralph, there was somebody seen uh, who led to the death of Tamizu. And nobody today in the movement, even in the cadres of the movement, is talking about Tamizu. And Ben Lang. Why is the African National Congress, why are members of Umkundoesis, not Umkundoesis, I'm talking about Umkundoesis, not talking about Tamizun? Who keeps Tamizun? Because somebody seen a must respond. Lastly, what must we do now? Which is important that in honor uh, of Timor, we must not insult judicial, we must not protect the public press, we must not uh, uh, betray the, our people working class in particular. I think that is what we must do. All of us, irrespective of polarity, that is why it's important that the rest day we defend the present God. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Sianda in Kwatuguza. Motala in Durban, good morning. Shabona. Welcome, Motala. Now, I was a friend of Ahmad Didab, and unfortunately, during the apartheid era, any individual who publicly opposed the secure the government with regards to their oppressive policies were arrested, imprisoned, and in fact were, and even if you were in possession of Das Capital, the Communist Manifesto, which was banned, you would be lead, it would lead to your arrest, and then they would torture you. Now, I also experienced the same thing, and I ha- they came to search if I had dark copy capital and all that. But fortunately, I was saved because they didn't find that, and they couldn't find any evidence that I opposed the government. And I know many people who opposed the government had to run away. But if you were caught, you were imprisoned, you were publicly, I mean, you were privately tortured, to get all information out from you as to who is behind it, which other people are involved in this. And if you don't give them the information, they will even go to the extent they went with Ahmad Timor, my, my friend. 
So this was the policy of the government, and they didn't care who you are. The moment you oppose them, in whatever way, you are in trouble. And if they caught you, you will be imprisoned, you will be beaten up, and you will be oppressed. And this happened to many of my friends. Many of my friends even ended yeah. up in Robin Island because of the oppressive laws at that time. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much, Motala in uh, Durban. Uh, Eunice in Johannesburg, good morning. Yeah, hi there, Sakina. Sakina, the question to your guest is, are, the, are any of the perpetrators of, uh, you know, the death of Amati Molde's uh, special branch, are they still alive? That's the first thing. The second thing is, I think the problem is with the, was with the TRC itself. Because if you take the lab, for example, the family of another detainee was killed in detention, Imam Abdullah Harun. They saw the limitations of the TRC and they, they realized at that time that it was a joke and they, they virtually abandoned, you know, being represented there on the TRC. They saw the limitation and they realized that it's nothing and, you know, just to have a school or a road. And incidentally, you know, the family himself, there were many representations in the case of Imam Harun in Cape Town. You know, it, they wouldn't even name a street or whatever. And obviously he was more aligned to the PAC. So, you know, the entire, I think the problem was more with how the TRC was set up. And it was just then those that did appear, you know, just appeared there and... Uh, there were no charges or no one was detained for it. And the sad part, like you rightfully say, is what about those that come from poorer backgrounds, the, the, you know, those that just the family members died and would never, ever know what happened to them. So, you know, to me, I think the problem was the TRC itself. And I'd like your guest to answer about if any of the perpetrators are still alive. Thank you so much, Eunice. Uh, Dr. Marjorie Jobson from the Kulumani Support Group. Thanks for calling in. Good morning, Sakina, and thank you for focusing on this incredibly important issue and the advance that um, MTS Kaji has managed to create. It is, it's inspiring so much hope in many, many hundreds of victims. Um, on, on Saturday, we marked 18 years since the TRC report was handed to President Mandela. We had a march to Parliament and a gathering in the cathedral afterwards. And the issue is that there are two sides to the coin of securing justice and ending impunity, and that is reparations for victims and prosecutions of perpetrators. And we hope that this is not just one that follows Nokutuna's um, case that is sort of has been delayed because of the actions of the alleged murderers. Um, we, actually, we have done research on going through every amnesty hearing transcript to identify people who fail to get amnesty who need to be prosecuted. And surprisingly, there are many of these people still alive, but it's an immense job to actually track them down and, and to bring them and to bring enough evidence to make um, procedures happen, such as the um, MTS Kaji has managed to do. So, yes, we, we think that... We, we, you know, we, we mourn the fact that the government is considering leaving the International Criminal Court because it truly has a focus on reparations and prosecutions, and you cannot have justice without both of those focuses. So strength to MTRs, um, and thank you for advancing this agenda. It is really, really important. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Marjorie Jobson. It is very important because, again... This is not something peculiar uh, to Ahmad Timol's family. 
and Nogutula Simelane's family. But there are just so many families who are struggling out there who will never, um, you know, have the opportunity to stand on a soapbox anywhere and tell their story. So this is as much for them as it is for those who do get to have their story told. Scully and Durban, good morning. Good morning to you, Sakina. Man, I'm honored speaking to you on the show. Thanks for calling, uh, Scully. Okay. Um, uh, Sakina, I was right there in Joburg, opposite John Foster Square. I was very young. I was about 1920 when uh, Timor fell from the, I think, 2013 floor. And, from um, the 10th. From the 10th floor, yeah. yeah. And then, hey, man, you know, from those years, I am. I, I can still remember Timor. And every other person was uh, brought to book, but uh, not the Timor case. Uh, my heart goes out to Ahmad Deh, your guest, uh, who is pursuing this case. And what a time we have to get out of the criminal court. So there's a lot of rogue elements here, man. Thank you for pursuing this matter. Thank you so much, uh, Scully and Durban. And let me read a few more messages here. Uh, Mr. Publisher says, uh, Timol's death wasn't in vain, but uh, the ANC continues to betray the memory of cadres uh, that it considers of no importance. And that, that, that's really hard-hitting, you know, uh, because it, it, it raises, again, very uncomfortable questions. And how do we move forward from here on in? Um, I.G. Lazarus Sima says, um, justice works for the rich because they can afford. Poor people will never see nor smell justice. Life is full of drama. Uh, Azania Mboya says, it's a great pity that the DA and other sanctimonious groups don't show the same zeal to pursue the horrendous apartheid crimes as they do pursue Jacob Zuma. And Ditiro says, um, but Zuma is in the lead. He has favorable conditions right now to change things. Uh, you wouldn't expect the DA to do that. The ANC needs to show leadership in this instance. Uh, Luzuko says the government of the day has forgotten the fallen heroes and comrades. They are on the gravy train now and enjoying that. Mduduzi says uh, the TRC didn't do enough um, if there is still untold truth out there. Investigating intelligence structures must work harder. But you see, apart from that, there is that little matter of people who did not receive amnesty from the TRC during that process. And why have those people not been prosecuted? I mean, that's a simple enough question to get straightforward answers to. And yet... For some reason, we are not getting there. As MTS was saying, we're not probing. Uh, these are uncomfortable questions, but they are questions that need to be answered. We need to face this if we are going to be honest and authentic about dealing with our past. Uh, Ditiro says, Zuma, um, I've got that one. Uh, Lungelo says, I'm not a commemorist, but the value of closure for families is very much linked to the true reflection of what our history actually is. Um, MTS? Look, very true. I think all the sentiments echoed by our listeners, uh, totally agree with them. Just to answer the earlier question, I mean, my own investigation indicates that nearly all of the perpetrators responsible for the arrest, detention, and in our opinion, the murder have passed on. There might be a few that were involved, uh, you know, in the periphery that are still alive. But I think it's very clear um, that they've taken a stance of not cooperating. And, you know, my entire journey, uh, Sakina, has been a very passive one. 
You know, there's no form of aggression, no form of hatred, no form of vengeance. Um, two of the perpetrators, you know, before they passed on in around 2005, uh, Captain Gloy and Captain Fanikar. You know, I contacted Captain Gloy, and on numerous occasions telephonically, I begged him. I said, I've got absolutely, the family's got no intention of prosecution. We don't want to see you as a 70, 80-year-old man going behind bars that is not medically, uh, already medically unfit. But you have to give us details. You have to share with us. We want to hear from you as to what had transpired. He blatantly refused. And he stuck to his position that the inquest findings has cleared him and has cleared all the security branch responsible for my uncle's death. So it's very, very significant that at least we've started a process of getting the application reopened. I think that is the first phase. And obviously now we need to ensure that the NPA fulfills its mandate, that the matter goes to court, the information gets provided, and we get the findings reversed. And obviously that will hopefully lay the precedent, specifically on the Neil Agat case also, because Yasmin and her team had also made an application mm. simultaneously on the Agat case, also died in police detention in the 80s. So we've got three cases currently. We've got a Similani, we've got the Timon, and we've got the Agat cases. So obviously once we, we get to the outcome of those three particular applications, hopefully it will map a, a positive way out for all the other families. And um, that was the one issue. Uh, the, the, the TRC, and you already spoke about you know, your grandmother's sentiments about that particular process. But you know, with the benefit of hindsight and you know, all the information that you have since managed to uncover, what is your feeling about the TRC process? Look, I think it was a noble attempt, and it was something that was required. And initially, I was very critical of the TRC, but in hindsight, I, I don't think that the TRC can absorb all the criticism labeled against it. They started off a particular process, a fair process where people were given an opportunity as victims and perpetrators. But the reality is they did not have the capacity and resources to fulfill their mandate. And this was all handed over in the final TRC reports that was handed over to the government. So it was government's responsibility to fulfill and complete the mandate of the TRC. In my grandmother's case, um, you know, after she testified, uh, gradually she, she, her health deteriorated and she passed on. So she basically gave the country and the world another opportunity to hear what she had endured. But the reality is that we required the TRC process at the time because it was a perfect opportunity for us to come together as South Africans with a simple uh, responsibility of making full disclosures. I think that was a key aspect because that was a platform for us to forgive our perpetrators and to forgive our enemies. But due to the fact that they even failed to apply for amnesty, clearly tells you that in their view, they had co committed absolutely no atrocity. They were responsible correctly for defending this particular country against enemies of this particular country, and they are not to be held accountable for it. So as your parting shot, you know, you're obviously working on a second book. Tell us about that very briefly, what you'll be looking at in that particular edition. And also, if you had a magic wand, you know, how would you like to see this particular matter and others like it resolved? Look, the second edition, like I've stated earlier, is to deal with the pertinent questions. Uh, is to get to the bottom of how my uncle was detained. And they're very complex questions, and one cannot just generalize. Mm. You know, one needs to investigate in detail, 
But I think I've, I've pierced a picture together that will hopefully give the public more details as to what really transpired for my uncle. As to the, the way forward, I, you know, mine is a living example that if, if, if ever one particular individual can start a particular journey, um, you know, one gets protected. It's a calling, the doors open, but it's something that should inspire other particular families. But there has to be sustainable effort mounted on government, even from political parties. And this is where, for me, it becomes very significant. So why is it that so many prominent people today don't want to talk of the past? What is it that we are hiding about the past? Why is it so difficult for us to commemorate and to get to the bottom of our tragic history? These are pertinent questions. Whether we like it or not, we cannot avoid them. Mm. And they will continue to surface. And in my limited view, they are already surfacing with all the challenges that we are facing today. But it is due to the tremendous sacrifices of ordinary South Africans. And to reiterate the point that Timor was only one of them who took on this entire apartheid regime, sacrificed their life for you and I today to live in a democratic dispensation. And this is something that we can never, ever forget. Well, MGS, thanks so much for your time this morning. And that was MGS Ahmed Kaji, the nephew of Ahmed Timol, telling us his story. And, of course, we'll continue probing. We'll continue, you know, keeping tabs on the developments around this and other stories like it, uh, because it is important, at the very least, you know, for families to get closure, if nothing else. Justice? What justice, some would say. And uh, we will, we will endeavour to uncover as much of it as we possibly can. Thank you so much for your time this morning, uh, Imtiaz Ahmed Kaji, and to all of you for tuning in.